0: Tonight's program, our eighth in the Origin Series, is about sourcing and baking with local whole grains. We are pleased to welcome Heinz Tomei from Next Step Produce in Newburgh, Maryland, who along with his wife Gabrielle, owns an 87-acre organic farm. Heinz grows and mills whole grains including wheat, oats, barley, and rye. Heinz is also one of the leading growers of rice in Maryland. Also joining us is Woodbury Kitchen bread baker, Russell Trimmer, who worked with Heinz for several years where he learned as much as he could about whole grains. Russell is a tireless advocate for incorporating whole grains into the baking repertoire. And now, I'd like to turn the program over to Dana Slater, the producer of the Origins Speaker Series.
1: Hi everybody, I'm Dana Slater, I'm the producer of Origins, and wanted to welcome you to, I think it's our seventh or eighth, eighth, eighth installment, actually it's a year anniversary, so we've been doing this for about a year, our small gatherings that talk about the local food movement and the people behind it. And tonight we're just utterly thrilled to have Heinz Domet. How did I do? <laughs> okay. And Russell Trim I'm sorry. Trimmer. Trimmer, who is the new bread baker at Woodbury Kitchen. And Spike will tell you all about Heinz as we go along. Just a couple of a quick announcements. Tonight's proceedings, if you don't know, are being recorded. So if you need to go to the ladies' or men's room, now is a good time. We'll be in here for about an hour to an hour and a quarter, depending on how the conversation goes, and we want it to be just that. We want it to be a conversation. So if at any time during the presentation you want to raise your hand, I'll come over with the mic, and please just speak your mind. You know, don't, don't wait until the end of the evening. A couple things about our upcoming events on February 18th, which is a Thursday night, We're going to be talking about sustainable seafood. And we have a wonderful panel. We have TJ Tate from the National Aquarium, who's their new director of sustainable seafood. We have Lee Carrion, who's a a crabber in Dundalk, and Tony Conrad from Conrad's Crabs and Seafood Restaurant. So just mark your calendars for that. And then April 28th, which we're skipping March because I'm going on a little trip. We're having a fellow named Bernie Herman, who is the head of the American Studies Department at the University of North Carolina. And we're still confirming a few other panelists, but that'll be about Foods of the Chesapeake, focusing on the eastern shore of Virginia. A couple of thanks, real quick thanks to Hannah Reagan, as always, for being such a great coordinator behind the scenes for everything. So, big hand for Hannah, please. <laughs> I want to thank Mark over here from the Broadcasting Institute of Maryland. He volunteers his time um, to record this for tonight. Mark's been with us since day one. We really appreciate everything he does for us. Mary Romeo in the corner does all our social media. Thank you, Mary. Like the Facebook page, please. Origins a Speaker Series. And lastly, Sean O'Shea, who couldn't be with us tonight, but she volunteers. She's a local florist, and she provides all the beautiful flowers for us for each event. So I think that's about it. This recording will be on Heritage Public Radio. It's an internet radio station all about food. It's based in Brooklyn, New York, behind Roberta's Pizza. I had the pleasure of going up there in December. It's literally about as big as this little space right here, but they would love you to like their page and look into their shows as well, and we're hoping to bring them down here sometime this spring. Spike doesn't know that yet, (laughs) but uh, we are. So that's about it. (laughs) So without further ado, I'm going to turn it over to Spike, and thanks for coming.
0: Well, thanks, Dana. Once again, welcome to the friendly confines of Artifact Coffee, where we hold these conversations. I have to say I've been looking forward to this one for a long time. We have, as Dana mentioned, the privilege of having Heinz Tome, who, along with his wife Gabrielle, is the owner and operator of Next Step Organics.
2: The next Step Produce.
0: Produce, down there in southern Maryland, Charles County. They've been there for about 15 years. He is truly one of the titans of the local food scene, somebody that we've at first kind of looked up to from afar and then gradually got to work with over time. I remember vividly, even if Heinz doesn't, my first visit to the farm and just how inspired we were. Heinz took us up next to a field of flowering buckwheat and just had us, all of us, busy, hyperactive restaurant people just stand there quietly, don't say anything, just, just listen and just take this in. And we just stood next to this field of flowering buckwheat and just could feel and hear and sense the life that was in that field. And I think to me that's become emblematic of what Heinz does and, and how he, he thinks about food is... is it's. It's clearly his livelihood, but it's also this life force that he's working with. And it's definitely inspired and informed our work since that day. And we're happy now to be able to call Heinz one of the farmers I think that we work most closely with. We drive a little van every week in season and every other week, now that it's winter, down to the DuPont Circle Farmers Market in D.C. to pick up produce and freshly milled flour, which is what we're going to be talking about tonight, from Heinz's stand there in D.C. And so, very happy to have Heinz with us. Also here, newly arrived to the Woodbury family is Russell Trimmer. He's our new bread baker at Woodbury. He comes to us via some time working with Heinz on his farm and also from a bakery called Sub Rosa in Richmond. I think we got together because of our shared interest in baking with whole grains. You'll come to understand just how important that is to this entire kind of undertaking of locally grown and milled grain and flour The use in baking with whole grains is incredibly central to all that. So glad you guys are here. I guess I will start with Heinz for a second. If you could just give us a little bit of background on Next Step, particularly, I guess, you've been working with grain, growing grain. I remember seeing a very simple one-page website that I think you had up for a little while that talked about your efforts. That's what first intrigued me,
2: how and why you do it. Uh, Next Step Produce. Uh, Our first season was the year of 2000 and it was the first time in my life as I was doing the self-employed thing before that I was working for many different places and one of the underlying thing at Next Step Produce is was, still is, I said I need to have something I can guide the farm and come up with a slogan, a model, and we, the model for us is committed to growing excellent food in harmony with nature. And there, the food, you know, food for us should be nourishing and not just be a belly filler. And the other thing is, how do we do that without being at war with nature? You know, just, you can look at any farming magazine. There's a lot of war talk in there, man against nature. All the chemical farmers is a war against nature, and it 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 violates something in me approaching life in a, in a, in that way. It's I I rather look at it as a big symphony, <coughs> as a big coexistence. You know, like my business um, relationship with Woodbury should not be that. I try to you know gain most economic benefits, and he has the same thing. It, it it should be a mutually beneficial relationship where both of us gain, and everybody who eats it, would, uh, artifact, woodberry, etc., goes home with nourishing food. Food should be grown to nourish people and not just to fill belly. So that was a big underlying thing uh, when we purchased a farm, we owed, the ba- we owed the bank a lot of money, so vegetables was a way to pay back the banker the fastest. And then we started, you know, when you look at the local food movement, we covered produce, we covered the animal protein, we covered liquors, you know, spirits, all that stuff that's fully covered. You can get drunk locally without any troubles. <laughs> um and that was not part of my vocabulary. i I'm not I need all my brain cells to to be part of the change. You know, what does this earth need? So then grains came slowly in, so we now with the grains, particularly with the weed. There's a number of people who say you cannot grow quality bread grain on the East Coast. Uh, grain, wheat by nature is a semi-arid crop, it needs the moisture to establish, it needs the dryness to to mature, the East Coast does not provide that. So um, that was the first thing, you know, are all the people who say you cannot grow, are they right? I didn't have to prove them wrong, I just had to find out for myself, so we did the bread grain, but we did many other things, we grow hollis oats, we grow hollis barley, we grow rye, we grow sorghum, we grow millet, we grow rice, um, buckwheat, um, and it's all, you know, when you want to do a sustainable farm, when I look, for example, at the forest, when I look at a, an old a meadow, it's not a monoculture, it's not a single crop, it's a tremendous diversity, and my understanding of sustainability leads to diversity, like, um, with the wheat, you know first see we planted uh, wheat for, for growing for bread, I would mix in poppy seed flowers, uh, uh, seeds, and I would grow in bachelor's button in there just to have a blooming element in there. At a very la- nice talk with a baker from Washington State not too long ago. He was talking about camelina. That's my next thing. Can I grow camelina with the wheat? To A, break up the monoculture, and then B, have another crop. I can press camelina into oil. It makes a... Uh, good oil. I haven't talked to Spike about it yet. It might take me five years, who knows? But next step for me was really, you know, can we grow good food on the East, uh, in, in Maryland, on that piece of land which, through destiny, was brought to me, and can we grow that in harmony? That's that's what we're all about. And if you do it right, I think the finances will be there. So so that's in a nutshell. It's, it's way more complicated than that, but we have to stop somewhere. <laughs>
0: There is this history, I think, that that I've become aware of in the Mid-Atlantic, you know, that wheat kind of came in and replaced a lot of the more, well, especially tobacco, as tobacco exhausted the soils around the Chesapeake, which is kind of the cash crop that drew a lot of early settlers here and was the the basis for the extractive economy that that started things out in the 1600s and 1700s. And then wheat came in and established itself as an important, another export crop um, it was really the crop around which, or the, the, um, the product around which the Port of Baltimore kind of established itself as an export port. Um, in, by the early 1800s, wheat and wheat products, flour, and even baked goods, you know, were the number one export from the Port of Baltimore. And with the shift in transportation infrastructure that occurred kind of after the Civil War, most of that went away. And that's that, the reality that wheat had played an important role in this. Um, you know, agricultural region, this food shed at some point, you know, intrigued me. And then, of course, when I heard about what Heinz was doing, that was kind of where the pieces of the puzzle started to come together. We've been baking with Heinz's wheat now for uh, four,
2: <laughs> four years. Yeah. yeah,
0: years. And continue, and and, his, and we buy his rye and other things. We've had trouble connecting the dots because we've been working it into our baking, but it's difficult and there are challenges. Whole grain baking is. It's not as easy as just like, oh, I'll do a, a little bit of a switcheroo here. I'll add, I'll take out some flour and add some whole wheat flour. We've come to understand that. And when, when I started talking to Russell and found that he, he shared a lot of the same kind of ideas and had worked with Heinz, of course, which says something about him, we're excited to bring him in. And I would love, Russell, for you to talk a little bit about, you know, it's your early days here at Woodbury, and um, but maybe just more broadly about you know why baking with whole grains makes sense, what kind of drew you to that, and, and what you found as you've gotten more into it.
3: The real privilege of working with the grains that Heinz grows is that whether you're looking for the best bread you can possibly have, whether you're looking for the healthiest bread you can possibly have, whether you're looking for a healthy economy, healthy restaurants, this grain is the answer. You don't have to pick and choose. They all come together. That starts with whole wheat because just from a purely scientific, stepping back from the philosophical perspective, wheat flour is not a commodity crop. The wheat berry is the endosperm, the starch, It's the bran on the outside, and then it's the life part, the germ. And that's mostly oils, which means that within a week or two, it goes rancid. When we go to the grocery store and get whole wheat flour, basically, 100% of the time, it's going to be rancid, which means that very few of us, and for me several years ago, I had never tasted what good whole wheat tastes like. We talk about whole wheat things in sort of apologetic terms, and I catch myself doing this all the time, even now still. It's like, oh, and and you'd never guess this is made with whole wheat. But in fact, when you don't have the rancidity and you don't have all of the vitamins that have been oxidized, when you have a good freshly milled flour that... Contains good nutrients because it's been grown in harmony with nature in soil that has good nutrients. The flavor of that whole wheat comes through in a way that you could never get from just white flour alone, where all of the interesting things, all of the character of the wheat has been taken away. The privilege of my job is the privilege and the difficulty um, is trying to bring the amazing aspects of the wheat of the other grains that Heinz and other folks grow in this area, to bring that out in bread so that people recognize that we're not just sort of trying to do a switcheroo here where we pay more money for things that are local just because they're local. In fact, they're critical, they're really flavorful, they're really healthy, and make great bread we had a moment as russell
0: was getting started and he started baking some breads that were according to a lot of the things that he had learned russell traveled a bunch kind of in between i think your last job and and coming to woodbury and, and worked with some of the best bread bakers around the country staged various places especially out on the west coast and uh talked to some great folks and i'm sure we'll get to hear a little bit about that in a second but he was finally kind of baking his breads using heinz's flour We just had this incredible moment. I think somebody even posted a a nice shot where we were just tasting these breads. And, you know, I think the light bulbs were just going off in succession, the flavors that he was getting out of these breads, the texture. And then I took half the loaf home that we didn't eat, and I was just taking a big slice off of it every morning and toasting it and just having the best breakfast I've ever had. Some of our West Virginia salt and uh, and this incredible bread that was incredible as toast, you know, four days later. It was unbelievable. I mean, what, you know, hydration is a huge part of, of, I think, the way of, you need to think about whole grains—is that true? Or not to get too into the deep end of the technical aspect of baking, but I mean that's fundamentally different than anything we've been doing at Woodbury up to this point.
3: Yeah. So there's there's a couple things that have to come together in doing really good whole wheat bread. There's the freshly milled aspect, so you don't have the flavor of the rancidity. There's good and interesting varieties, and Heinz can talk more to this point. Variety wise, there's been a push for breeding for yield, and flavor is just sort of not in what people are thinking about. Not because there's any, like, genetic trade off between flavor and yield, just because it wasn't in the cards. And so there's a combination of bringing back old varieties and using new varieties that means that we have varieties that can yield well. There's plenty of room for improvement, and science will tell you but that bring forth that good flavor. The challenge is that with whole wheat, you have a bunch of extra sort of stuff in there. And it's amazing stuff, but it's stuff that doesn't behave predictably. Um, It's stuff that life can actually exist on. Bread is a living product. It's alive. And there's been a lot that's been done to try to industrialize that process, but at the end of the day, it's still alive. And when you introduce actual nutrients into the process, it means that you have to read the dough because depending on what's in there, what yeast or what natural leavening you put in there, it's going to go much faster or much slower in a way that if you're throwing yeast into white bread, you can sort of get it down to science. But you have to feel the dough, you have to work with the freshly milled flour, which there's a number of things that Heinz is doing that we're all doing that people say are sort of impossible. And in the baking world, everyone, point blank, basically everyone, at least up until the last several years, has said that you need to age your flour at least a month in order for it to behave predictably and have the strength to make good bread. Well, by that time, the oils are rancid, the micronutrients are gone. But in my travels... I got to talk with this amazing visionary fellow named Dave Miller in Chico, California. He was profiled in a book Cooked by Michael Pollan relatively recently. He has a giant stone mill. He mills, and then within minutes, he's mixing the dough. And he does 11 different kinds of bread once a week. He's sort of in semi-retirement now. Ten of them are completely whole grain. One of them is half and half a sort of an introductory bread, which is completely unnecessary because the rest of them are all mind-blowing. He told me that the science of, of all of this, of freshly milling and such, is yet to be done. The few studies out there he knows of that you can find on the Internet show that immediately after milling, flour is incredibly strong. And then over the course of several weeks, it becomes really weak. And then once all the things in it get oxidized after like a month, then it's strong again. There's a lot of things in each stage of this process that are being written anew, that are being rediscovered, where there is science that hopefully will catch up at some point, but we can stand by a field of buckwheat, we can feel dough, we can taste bread, and... Know that we're on the right path. It's really and hopefully hands. science catches up.
0: Yeah. But. So talking about varieties, and I think Opie and I were laughing about this earlier because if you spend any time in a restaurant kitchen, a lot of times the variety of, of flour you see is these two twenty-five pound bags of gold metal AP flour that come in. It's the only flour I ever really saw in a restaurant until Woodbury, and that's the flour that we cook with, or work with, bake with, you name it. Even this talking about varieties. Heinz, you're growing a number of varieties on the farm. I think in a sense, trialing them, you know, finding ones that work for you, work for this climate. The yield and the product, the end product is something that... Can you talk a little bit about that process and what you're doing with the wheats on the farm?
2: As I said, the starting point was that you cannot grow a good quality bread grain on the East Coast. So then I said, well, let me plant... As many different varieties I can get my hands on. Let me grow, you know, heritage varieties. Let me grow modern varieties. Like we started out with three modern, newer varieties, hard red spring wheat varieties. Like even this fall, we planted three hard, no, two hard red spring weeds. We planted two heritage heritage varieties: a soft white winter, hard white winter. And it's all really finding out what is the, and what does that shine? You know, like our hard white winter, it really shines in making like a pizza crust. It has the most elasticity of any of the grains that grow. And that was just, that was really beautiful. Like the, the pastry flour we grow, it makes good pastry but it still has flavor left. You know, it all really goes back, are we growing foods to fill the belly or are we growing foods to nourish? And now also, you know, like Russell is a different character than I am. Why should we have that uniform food? I don't believe that you know, root should replicate itself in LA as well as in Boston. I think that unique characteristics should be maintained and what does well on my place with my soil under my management. We start out with many different varieties and then, you know, streamlined streamlined them down. After a few years, we say, hey, drop this. It's really not shining in anything or not coming close. So we, you know, we're simplifying things, but we're all finding out what does well. You know, like with the rice, we, Trial 17 different rice varieties this past summer. It's all about what does well on my ground under our management in our situation. And then let's see which one tastes the best. And then what tastes the best and what deals, you know, good, then that's the one we run. But there is no research out there who tells me what pathway to take. S-
0: so-, so, what is the pro? You're relatively small-scale farmer here on the East Coast. What does it take from harvest, basically, through to milling? You're doing it all on the farm. I mean, a lot of what we talk about is our locally grown and milled flowers that, that Russell's now baking with. What does that look like for a farmer of your scale? Because one of the things I'm aware of that I'd love for you to share is the, the, the investment that you've made, first and foremost, in, or at least most obviously in, in machinery, and in equipment, to help you do this.
2: We are an organic farm and that organic par- uh, farm is part of the harmony the chemicals is an expression of a warfare and that was not part of my vocabulary when we started farming you know we did what we call a life support system as, as much as we I knew all about it we grew cover crops we grew crop rotation all nine you know whatever we we knew of could think of and then six years into the game, I said, hey, the food we grow is not as healthy as, we, as it ought to be. We were not, you know, reflection on the, the health of the plants, etc. says it's not what it's supposed to be. And a lot of it has to do, Spike was talking about this land was used for tobacco. Everything along any of those major rivers, that was tobacco ground. Mm-hmm. Tobacco The way it was grown, it was grown as a soil-destructive crop. It's a crop, it's a a summer crop, you plant it in the end of May, you take it off in October, the fields were bare, you plant it again. It's a crop which you plant about two feet apart, six rows from row to row, so the ground was bare ten months of the year, nine months of the year. And that meant bare ground in this bioregion is prone to erosion, It's prone to deterioration. So anything that's on one side you accelerated a natural weatherization of this crop. You know, the Piemanns, all it is, it's eroded Appalachians. Now, you can go on the USDA uh, websites. They have soil maps of, which shows you what part of the United States is depleted in what mineral. Like, I grew up in Switzerland. In Switzerland, over 100-some years ago, they uh, figured out that this, the Swiss landscape is depleted in iodine. Iodine leads to a certain illness. I forgot the name. Christopher Columbus figured out, you know, you cross the ocean and you run out of vitamin C, you're going to get sick. So for us to grow food really meant we had to address all those trace elements. And then we sort of embraced the Albrecht system. There's two philosophies in farming. One is use nitrogen as the... Fuel, another one is use calcium as the fuel. With the calcium as the fuel, we should be able to accomplish the yields without sacrificing the, the, the quality. That's why we run with it. The nitrogen fertilizer, you get the yields, you pay your mortgage back probably way faster, but you end up with a lot of belly-filling material, And which if you're in the medical industry, you love it because people will come to you. The food you eat is the foundation of your health. There is no if, no but. You had a question back there. I wanted to
1: find out, you mentioned that it's very easy to get drunk locally here in Maryland. And one of the reasons how that came about is uh, there's been a lot of education helping families turn tobacco farms or family farms into, um, in, into wineries and vineyards and and growing and producing grapes and converting their soil into something that's a little bit more manageable for our region. Are you taking your knowledge and the things that you're learning and, to, and helping to educate other farmers in our area, in our region, to help make a more sustainable grain industry as a whole? I, I love what you're doing. I buy a lot of your grains, but I have a lot of trouble finding it outside of.
2: Well, we're just um, a small guy. <laughs> so that's
1: what I'm wondering. Are you taking and expanding and helping to oh, spread your knowledge and um, make Maryland a fertile, grain-growing you, you, for, for,
2: I think most, if a large-scale farmer would look at my operation, he would just walk away shaking his head because I, I violate too much of what he learned. We're too far You know, you, know, you have to see, like, 15 years ago, the only thing you could grow in southern Maryland was tomatoes, uh, uh, cantaloupes, and sweet corn. That's the only thing you could grow. When I start talking to farmers that, hey, you can make a porridge out of sorghum, for example. It's not just bird food. You can grow rice in the mid-Atlantic. People look at me like, where are you from? <laughs> so, no, I'm too far I'm just I'm it it's, it's, has not sunk in and then also the average U.S. farmer is what 58, 59 years old the average U.S. farmer according to USDA statistics makes 19,000 bucks a year so between 59 years old and barely making a living how much change do you expect the change has to be driven by the consumer not by the farmer that's, that's the way I see it and as I said, I like um, a, a couple of distilleries, for example, approached me to grow rye and I, I just, I, I couldn't get friendly. I, I want to grow food for people, not to get them tipsy. So I tried to, you know, say, hey, neighbor farmer, you have the land. Why don't you grow rice? And the couple of farmers I talked to, they just snuff their, their nose. As I said, you, it's harder to teach a six-year-old man a new trick than, than a young person. And with the young people, the capitalization we've done have been tremendous. And the capital, you know, because there was no industry in place to clean grain. Yes, you find in the, some locally. I found somebody who will have clean soybeans for me. But I, I didn't want, to, you know, all my neighbors go GMO soybeans, so I wasn't going to go that way and then going to him and say, hey, I need to get whatever hairy Vetch out of weed, he would not have done the capitalization. So we did it all because I'm in it for the long run. And as I said, people need need good food. My family needs good food. You can, you know, however you want to twist it. I mean, maybe it's just a selfish act, but good food is the foundation of your clear thinking and on your health. And so with my, doing outreach, no, you could hang me on it. It's, but on the other hand, I know I'm just too um, too radical in many ways. You know, you're not going to find more than a couple of rice growers in the mid-Atlantic. You have to go all the way down to uh, South Carolina. Millet, it's not part of most people's vocabulary. Barley, you know, we grow amazing harvest barley. I mean, uh, when was the last time you had a barley soup? It's just not part of people's vocabulary yet. But for me, is how do we grow with the least resistance and then also how do we do that in a diverse way? As I said, it all goes back. This bioregion here, by nature, is very diverse. Just walk the forest, it's not just la blale pine. And then how do I come in and work with nature? And the average farmer, when you go to education, you are out there with your machine gun, and you you make sure everything is is, is subdued. It's just a totally different approach.
3: Part of the difficulty and the beauty of doing this work is that um, farmers have, some farmers have, so much of the knowledge um, and so little of the time to and capacity when they're done doing such hard and important work um, to go out and evangelize in the world, um, and so that's sort of if I can speak first, spike what Woodbury is all about, um, and a lot of the responsibility lies in us here um, to share Heinz's work with others. And um, it's, not, it's not as hopeless as it might seem at some points um, because a lot of farmers actually already are growing grain in this region. They're just not growing it for human consumption. Um, the reason that Heinz got into growing grain, or at least part of it, is that um, they're important cover crops. Um, and the better farmers are growing cover crops whether they're harvesting or not. Um, so there's the knowledge part, there's the age, um, the a lot to learn um, in terms of growing wheat and other grains that are especially nutrient-dense and good for baking, um, and there's the huge investment that Heinz has made in cleaning in milling and harvesting equipment um but farmers are already growing grains and there hasn't been a lot of education for bakers or professionally or home bakers um there isn't hasn't been the infrastructure um but farmers are actually probably closer to making a regional grain economy happen um than the end users are um, in a lot of ways. And it takes a division from Heinz to, to expand beyond the basic commodity wheat and rye. Um, but, yeah. well, one of the things,
0: you know, when I talk to Heinz and... and
2: sorry.
3: No, <laughs>
0: sorry. no,
2: go ahead.
0: Well, well, I'll just say quickly, when I talk to Heinz, um, I, I've never asked him a question where I felt like, if he didn't know, he always gives whatever questions in front of him his full kind of concentration. And a lot of times he'll say, "I'll get back to you." And it's not just kind of like a, he's not, you know, holding me off. He, he'll get back to me in a very thoughtful email about why he can't do sorghum syrup for us at this time. And you know, we we kind of embarked on this. Uh, I, you know, I, I when Heinz was growing and we were getting grain from him, I, I kind of put in front of him, "How about mustard seed?" And that, to me, was one of the great successes because he, he was thoughtful about it. He went and did his research, came back, and he said, I think I can grow yellow mustard seed here. I think uh, the qualities of yellow mustard seed as opposed to brown or black mustard seed would do the best in the Mid-Atlantic from what...
2: It, it was a, uh, oriental mustard. is extremely small. needs a different technology. I, I reprim- couldn't grow oriental mustard. I was just not willing to spend the extra technology. So
0: that... It, it, what it... it the good news is we ended up with a thousand pounds of, of yellow mustard seed uh, the next year that we're still working with, that Lauren's still working with, and that's that's our mustard now. Um, but I feel similar. I think when I hear Heinz talk about the certitude that a lot of people have about what's possible, um, what can be done in this region, or you know, ultimately, I think what makes fiscal sense. I think what makes fiscal sense to a lot of growers um, because they're used to or they're very sure that things are done a certain way and can only be done a certain way. Um, and what Heinz is willing to kind of go out there uh, and, and try and, and kind of work through what at, here at Woodbury, uh, what we're able or willing to kind of work through. It's very similar, and I agree wholeheartedly with Russell when, you know, it's kind of our job then to take what Heinz has done and, and work with it, in this case, in the form of, uh, of you know, baking with Heinz's uh, flowers and see, see what's possible. It's incredible. I, I agree with the, the word Russell used. I, I feel very privileged to be in that position, um, to be working with Heinz in this case. Uh, his, well, anything he grows for us. All of which I, I, I I'll just slip in. is going to be part of our uh, supper here in a minute. Um, but did you, uh, somebody else?
4: Just when you're ready. Sure. I, I would like to know the size of your farm, where in Charles County it is, and how you came to have it in 2000.
2: Uh, what was the last farm? And how
4: you came to have it in 2000? How you came to this? Oh, land.
2: Um, well, we are. Oh, we're, uh, when you take 301 south, we're the last town before you cross back into Virginia. So we're the southern part of Charles County. Uh, the total farm is 80 some acres, which is uh, we have we we boring on a tidal marsh. So 10 acres go away there bunch goes away. So we have 15 acres in small grains for the winter and that's in 12 different varieties just because (coughs) we still, we've not you know, one of my struggles was that I needed a baker who talks the language and Russell is the first woodbury baker who does talk the language. You know that whole, as Russell said, for a baker to mill into the kneading dough that's a foreign concept. Sabrosa, where he went to, that was part of their philosophy. Uh, the, the Artisanal bakers he visited throughout the states, that was part of the philosophy. But because I'm European-born, that's part of the philosophy there. You know, every German who comes over here and has bread, he's just wondering what, what, what are they eating. You know, as a Swiss people, I came over here and said, "They call that cheese." <laughs> not not worthwhile eating. That's a whole other subject. That's not... <laughs> that's a whole other <laughs> subject, but it, it, it's just, it's just, you know, we a lot of what we do reflects the heritage we all have. And, um, you know, Switzerland never bragged about being a melting pot, for example. We have, you, you know, you look at the landscapes, different landscapes, different Jesus, and that's part of the characteristic. And here, I mean, as I was an American. Would well, I travel to China and go to the McDonald's. I mean, that's... <laughs> it puzzles me. <laughs> so, so anyway, um, so eighty four acres, fifteen in small grains. Um, how did I get there? In ninety nine, I worked on a big industrial organic farm up in Pennsylvania, and um, we had. I forgot 20 acres in tomatoes I don't think I ate more than 4 tomatoes or 5 tomatoes the whole year they looked perfect there's no flavor left they were meant to be shipped they were meant to be looked at but it was just not worthwhile eating and I said you know what, what's the point it's like you go to the farmer's market now and you buy a greenhouse grown tomato what, what's the point I mean they can't get the flavor in there they don't have the flavor in there so why you support it you know is the time to eat watermelon radishes and turnips. I mean uh, Kale, that's the time now and that's what will nourish you, not that <coughs> red looking something, you know, just because you don't know how to adjust your plate as the year progresses. So so anyway, uh, friends of mine owned the farm and there's a transition from farmer, you know, the old farmer left and I was sort of, worked on that industrial farm in Pennsylvania and I was just not meant to picking salad greens 40 hours, 30 hours a week. My knees just didn't, we're not going to last. Those farms function because they can rotate through the Latino population year in, year out. You know, nobody's meant to pick cucumbers eight hours a day. You want to destroy yourself real fast, pick cucumbers eight hours a day. I mean, it's just, you know, yes, we white people sit on the tractors and do the nice work, but we just cycle through the Latino community like there's no tomorrow. And that's not right. And that all goes back, you know, that whole harmony. Um, how do we, you know, if I wanted to play that self-employed game, I mean, what, how do I implement the philosophy I carried? So anyway, friends of mine had to farm. They approached me, Heinz, would you like to farm it? And I looked at it I said, yep, if I want to farm, I want to do retail. I was close enough to a big city. I didn't want to drive four, five hours to get to a metropolitan area. I wanted to be far enough south to grow figs. That was my big (laughs) dream. That was a criteria. But I didn't want to go much further because I get heat rashes. And man, you get a heat rash in the summer, you are in misery. What was it? Four years ago, we had that two weeks over hundred degrees. Man, I was—I had nothing good to say about. That. Anybody growing an SUV or had that that big four thousand square foot home, I was just a heat rash day in day day out. It's just miserable. I was, you know, we are at the forefront of that whole global change warming thing. I mean, it's gonna hit us first, you know, way before anybody else, and that's already creating a whole bunch of new problems. So, anyway, did I answer all your questions? Yes,
3: beautiful. We
2: you're welcome.
1: Um, Heinz, I just wonder what you think. In, given the sort of trajectory for the world's population, do you think it is possible to return to a place or get to a place where communities can feed themselves again, where specific regions can really feed them feed themselves again um, in in line with the, the philosophies that we're talking about here and the methods that we're talking about here, do, do you think that we can feed a growing world population? In this way, do you think it's possible?
2: With feeding the growing world population, right now 50% of all the food never makes it on the table. So we have an amazing reservoir there of what what is there to eat. Hunger is not a product of food shortage. In most cases, hunger is a product of economic conditions. You know, um, I remember that's like 20 years ago, there's a, a hunger a famine in India throughout that famine India was exporting potatoes to Germany so it was not an economic thing it was an economic thing it was not a production issue and right now more than 50% of the food grown in the United States never reaches the table you know from being left out in the field being called out or Never makes it out of the fridge. I mean, <laughs> it's a whole thing. So you have a huge reservoir. The other thing is, as I said, we farmers are about 1%. Out of that 1%, 1% is organic. If you look for us for the change, we don't have the main power left. But if it's consumer-driven, if it's driven by the young people, not waiting for the governments to come in and, and create it, then yes, it can happen. It needs to be consumer-driven. It just it cannot be... I mean I'm I'm almost average US farmer age now. I mean you know <laughs> you want me to pay you know pay all the bills, pay all the health insurance, everything else, and go out and, and uh evangelize. I'm the lobbyist one to evangelize it. <laughs> it's just not me.
4: So Heinz, we talk a lot and um you always say I'm just one man a lot. Like, you know, hey, why can't you do this? Well I'm just one man and like I just wonder, like, as we're talking about, like, 50% of the food, you know, going in the trash or the compost, like, what can the consumer do, you know, to, to help that along, to help, you know, people change their thinking and change, you know, the way they eat and change, you know, the grains that they're buying? You know, most people don't realize that if you buy grains at the grocery store that, you know, they're rancid or that it's not high quality. Like, what, what can people do to get the message out? Well, if you eat out, eat at Woodbury for sure.
2: <laughs> <laughs> I mean, they're walking the talk more than any other restaurants in in, in, in the whole, you know, D.C., uh, Baltimore area. They're walking the talk way more than, you know. And, Mr. It, become educated. You know, know what it means to purchase conventional food, you know, know what it means, you know, what are, you know, like read the book Tomato Land, for example. The literature is out there for you, you know, to have a sense of how food is produced. And then shop at the farmer's market, you know, get to know your farmer, ask about his practices, and and then say, hey, I really want to support that. And then as a young person, Hey, what do I want to do with my life? You know, and not be afraid of work and, and and be afraid to be part of the change.
4: Yes. When you say know your farmer, you know, when I when I started at Woodbury with Spike three years ago, you know, I went to the farmers market before and you know I'd buy a lot of stuff and you know, not all the stuff at the farmers market is good. So like what questions would you ask what what kind of conversations would you like to have what what kind of conversations do you like to have with with your customers and the people that are buying your produce what are the what are the questions that you like to hear what are the questions you don't like to hear and and how can people really you know engage with with farmers at the market and really know where their food comes from because sometimes you know you go to the farmer's market and you ask somebody like oh hey are these your tomatoes and they're like of, of course they're my tomatoes why wouldn't they be my tomatoes and you're like well, because it's 20 degrees outside and, you know, they're not, right, it's, they're not growing right now. So,
2: Well, one of the things is like, um, I can't speak about Baltimore, but in Washington, D.C., we have uh, growers-only markets, so there's no reselling. Like if you go to a market and you see bananas and oranges, that's a resale market. When they bring the first watermelons, they're coming from Carolina. They go down there, buy a bay, you know, tom- uh, watermelons for cheap, bring it up here and sell it for cheap. Um, growers only market I think as such have a higher, higher quality produce I think across the board there is, there is a, a difference in the quality of the produce so I would, I would select for growers only markets and then Mr. Farmer um, you know you can start out hey there's that farmer talking about war against nature where do you stand but then also, where in your own life are you? You know, you go to church Sunday morning, and you know when you drive home, you know you're ready to drive the guy over who steps. You know, so it's. it's <laughs> I mean, I lived in Lowden County, uh, Virginia, for a while. That was the worst territory I've ever seen for bicyclists. I mean, Sunday morning before church, I will not go bicycle anymore. <laughs> it's just miserable. Before <laughs> so, church. <laughs> so, you know, it, it's sort of hard, but really, you know, uh, certified organic is certainly one thing, but on the other hand, we are in process to really look at our certification because it, a lot of it turns out to be just paperwork. It has nothing to do with the reflection or a philosophy, it reflects the philosophy of the farmer. I like, if I want to please my inspector, I can add three hours of paperwork every week, and it's just a plain exercise and I, it just violates all my, I didn't function in, this, in the military because it was just, this, I, I, I just didn't function. I did not function in the, in the senselessness of it all. And with the organic, I mean, he wants me to do just exercises and I just, I don't have the time Those three hours are gonna come out of where? My sleep, my family time, growing good food, where do they come from? Or do I hire somebody and then, you know, reflect it on the price, but then on the other hand, I never wanted to grow food for the the people with excess money. That was never part of my goal. Like, I won't touch microgreens. It's decoration on the plate. I wanted to grow food. But that's all me. So, you get to know your farmer, have a really good idea, you know, you eat to fill your belly, you eat for just social reasons, or you eat to stay healthy and, for, you know, for, for nutrients. And then, go to the market. I mean, taste those carrots. If they taste lousy, say, hey, they taste, you know, you need to really work on that. <laughs> No, I know that at the market I go to, I mean, my carrots are superior than anybody else's. They have sugar in it. And I'm not bragging. I had those other carrots, and they're generally across the board not worthwhile eating. And believe me, my guy next door, he has tomatoes in May. I, you know, I have tasted them, and every time I just say it's not worth it. I'd, I'd be stuck with my cabbage for another month and be happy. And I have a you know, beautiful family who knows how to dehydrate tomatoes. And, but that's where the self reliance comes in. So,
1: anyway. Heinz, can you talk a little bit about your rice growing method? Um, because I think a lot of people are interested in learning a little bit about how you grow rice in Southern Maryland.
2: Well, um, Globally, 90% of the rice is grown in in a wetland situation as paddy rice because the rice, um, the the water, the flooding of the field is really used to suppress everything else but the rice. The rice, the rice plant, the roots go in a symbiotic relationship with a bacteria who brings down the oxygen to the roots, so the rice survives uh, flooded conditions. Like your amaranth, your. Pigweed, etc., will not survive it. So rice is u- water is used as a weed control. Now, because I'm on sandy soil and I do not have access to that kind of water, like in Louisiana, Africa, was it? Um, I'm bad in statistics too. I think they use the equivalent of about 100 inches of rain um, to grow rice, which is which is not really sustainable. So, you know, for us to go, uh, so 90% is grown as paddy rice, 10% is grown as upland or dryland rice. And so that was the way for us to go. Uh, so we, we grow it without flooding. We d- did learn that rice is still a high water demanding crop if you want the yields. Uh, we learned the hard way, um, So we put in drip irrigation, we water it heavily. We also, a huge struggle has been to find the varieties who are maturing in whatever, 90, 100 days. Uh, You know, like uh, a lot of the rice needs 120 days or more. A lot of it, like, uh, last in 14, we uh, trialed a bunch of California varieties, highly susceptible to diseases. California has a very dry environment, versus the East Coast, high humidity, the air is just loaded with fungal diseases, so the California varieties did not do well for us. Um, so they there is, is it, all that trialing, what are the right varieties, you know, like um, we do well with uh, sticky rice, it comes, I think it has a, it's called Hamong sticky, Hamong is a territory where in Vietnam, Laos, that's subtropic, that's, that's humid. Um, Market reception on sticky rice, that's another issue. I mean, Uncle Ben's did a really good job. Rice needs to be fluffy. <laughs> and when I say sticky,
4: whoo!
2: <laughs> I'm very happy for Opie. He starts to embrace sticky. So, and then I mean, we did Koshihikari. It's a Japanese uh, sushi rice. It, the flavor is amazing. And uh, one customer said she had one uh, some uh, sushi rice, uh, Koshyikari rice in California was a different animal. So it looks like the way we do the whole remineralization uh, pays off. Um, and this year one who was shining was uh, uh, rice from Belize. We haven't done the taste test yet. Because that's the end of the thing, you know. Is it is it tasting? Because if it's just ordinary brown rice, white rice, you know, why you only to pay me five times the money? when you don't get a superior product. So the superior product is part of the vocabulary. So it's all, you know, hey, you gotta have some fun too somewhere, so let's, you know. I mean, you know, we grow, We have a couple lemon trees on our back. Yard.
4: So I can ask you to talk about the movement from the grain, from the stalk. Th- Becoming of, oh thank you. I'd like to so hear about it.
2: It's that it's too. um it's of hard, you know, everything is a it's, a it's a circle. Where you start. So let's start we you know decide of what varieties we want to grow, what field to put outside. We do the you know the preparation of the field and we seed it. And with the seeding, you know, we aim for thirty five seeds per square foot. We sort of do a scientific approach too. And then, you know, because yield is then still if important. So we aim for a certain seeding density. And then we, uh, we also learned we have to, to really make sure we have the tillering. And then we really just let it grow. And um, in many aspects, as I said in the beginning, I put in um, corn poppies. Because, you know, for example, it was two years ago. National Geographic, it was web-based, had an article that the honeybee senses the electromagnetic field around the flower and that electromagnetic field tells the bee if the flower needs to be pollinated or just got pollinated. So we're starting to enter subtle energies which have been totally unknown to us. So the honeybee senses an electromagnetic field of the flower and that field tells it, nectar. I don't have nectar, for example. So for me, mixing in a flowering element breaks up that monoculture and brings in an insect. Because after all, I I do not just grow grain. We also have bees. I have pollinators. It's all part of the harmony part. You know, if I want to live in harmony with my surrounding, what is part of that harmony? What pollinators is part of it. And also, when I talked to that baker out from Washington State, he said it, create, it gives it more flavor. I mean, how objective he was, we can certainly take him apart on that, but I like that saying, hey, I'll run with that. I do, you know, because it fits in, in my bigger vision of how do I farm. So I live in coexistence. So on the technical, you harvest with it? And then, uh, then it matures, <laughs> and then we have what's called a combine, we, which it's, it basically cuts it and dresses it, and then uh, we go through what's called an air screen cleaner. It's a primary sc- uh, cr- cleaner who uh, has an air to separate chaff, and then a sizer to, you know, takes the bigger seeds, uh, the, you know, bigger stuff away and the smaller seeds, and then we test for moisture. If you want to test a store grain long-term, you should get the moisture down to about 12% moisture content, and which is difficult to accomplish in the Middle Atlantic because of the high humidity. You know, If you go down to 13, 15 16%, it, it's usually all you get. And so if you like to get it down to 12%, a lot of it has to do with, and I'm sure you heard all about worm toxins in grains, I want to do you know, that low moisture, we don't have any worries about vermitoxins growing in storage. Um, and then, so, so so we clean it, we dry down to the desired thing, and then we clean it. And then because now I did not have that pure monoculture out there, I have a bunch of other seeds in there. I have mustard seeds in there, buckwheat seeds in there, veg seeds in there, and they all, it gets awful complicated. You know, we have, there's length separators, there's uh, flow separators, there's gravity separators. So because, you know, at the end of the day, when you come to me in my stand and you look, uh, you buy some wheat berries and you look in it and you see veg seed in it, and you say, hmm, what's that, mousy poop?
4: Uh,
2: <laughs> and that sale is history. He's not even going to ask me. He just walks away. So, so you know, yes, we ha- that's where the capitalization came in. You know, we just spent $6,000 on a length separator to really make sure that those black spots come out, which were not mousy-poo, but wild buckwheat. So, you know, so we, we clean it, and then we store it, and then I get a phone call from Opie or Russell, say, hey, mill me some flour. Because we also... It all goes back, you know, do I grow belly fillers or do I grow food? And because that whole freshness, you know, like um, McGill University in, uh, was it Toronto? Montreal. Montreal had a study, fresh versus aged. Uh, In the aging process, you lose your vitamin E. There your fertility goes, for example. So there's there's studies there. So freshly ground flavor is, is nutritionally superior. And if I want to grow food nourish you investing in a stone mill was the logical thing and then you know the man makes good bread my wife makes good bread hopefully you make good bread and if you like what I do you come to my stand, support me and I go home they you know, keep my like uh, my insurance bill paid whatever I else insurance because in case I fall off the tractor and the circle repeats itself but you stone grind to order. I stone grind to order. I really don't like to st- to 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 store grains because the oxidation happens. You slow down the oxidation by with cool. You know, the more you chill it down, the slower the oxidation happens. But I, I grind. You know, for every market, I, I, I hopefully I sell out. I Yes, by selling out means you could have sold more because somebody came and sold out. But I grind for every market and. Uh, would bury, you know, orders as they need it. Because as I said, it's really about you going home when you have all the clear thoughts to be part of the change. One of the things I don't want to
0: get, we might have kind of slipped over it, but the connection between the way that Heinz grows grains and mills flour and whole whole grain and our, our kind of Focus now on whole grain. I mean, you talked about it a little bit, Russell, but I'd love for you to kind of like pull that together because I think there's almost this when you hear how Heinz does it, there's this we're compelled almost to use the whole grain in some sense. yeah
3: Well, Heinz talked about throwing away 40, 50% of, of food in the United States. White flour is a big part of that. We're throwing away the best 25%. Um, and from a purely economic standpoint, like we can't pay Heinz, no one can pay Heinz, to do the amazing work that he does and then throw away a solid quarter, at least, of that product. Um, nor would you want to, because, um, as Heinz just touched on, the freshly milled aspect is critical to health, And the corollary to that is that it's critical to having really amazing flavor in the bread. Um, It's also critical to having just good, sort of fluffy, enjoyable texture as well as flavor bread. Um, If you're ever in California, it's worth making a trip to visit Dave Miller. Um, The milling method really really matters Um, and he gets his flour insanely fine um, in a way that you can create bread that is sort of a white flour-esque thing that we are used to um, but with a flavor and a nutritional profile um, that are completely different products. Um, You almost can't you can't talk about white bread and whole grain bread as the same thing. Um, our bodies are meant to process a full, whole food. Um, there's many studies, but one particular study out of Cornell um, that talks about the antioxidant properties of an apple um, are 263 times the measurable antioxidant properties of the vitamin C that's in that apple um, because of all of the various micronutrients that are working in harmony. Um, And that's true of we as well. And since it's on the order of days um, to several weeks that the degradation of the whole wheat is happening, um, it's critical that the flour comes from We call Heinz, the flour comes from him. um, It goes directly in the freezer. Um, Because I can't convince anyone that they should eat whole wheat bread that is able to support a regional grain economy um, if it's flavorless or rancid. Um, it's just not going to happen. People want good products, and we owe it to Heinz as well as to ourselves to have a fantastic product um, from the fantastic flour and grains that he provides.
2: And all of you could taste the bread out there. You know, it, 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 it may be different than the Wonder Bread. It's definitely different than Wonder Bread, but it, 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 it's nourishing, and that's, that's the end goal. You know, it, it, it's that's that's the end goal. It, it's health. You know, true health is, is based on a good diet.
3: So from a health perspective, an economic perspective, um, and just an enjoying life perspective, um, whole grain is the way to go. It's just not a language that most bakers in the United States speak. Um, it's a thing that sort of... As an artisan baker community, we are figuring out in the United States. Um, so, there's maybe on the order of 20 to 30 bakeries throughout the United States that are now milling or working closely with farmers to do the milling. Um, because without that aspect, you're not going to make good whole grain bread. Um, so, it's a huge learning process.
1: Can you give us any advice in
4: the kitchen? we have is great. My recipes
3: aren't going to work. Well, the the great thing is that if you're starting with grape flour, um, you're going to make great bread. Like, maybe it's not the most lofted thing you've ever seen, um, but it's going to be really enjoyable bread. Um, there's... The sort of semi-famous no-need recipe that Mark Bittman popularized—that um, would work really well with whole grain, um, because part of the not oxidizing um, is that oxidation happens with time, but it also happens with mixing because that <laughs> exposes flour to a lot of a lot of air, um, and so the method of getting the gluten to develop really well without a lot of work and a lot of damage to the flour um, is that you make a really wet dough and then that, because it's so wet, um, everything, the gluten and the yeast and the enzymes, it all flows through the dough really easily. Um, So with a very minimal amount of effort, you can develop that gluten into something sort of beautiful that makes the magical transformation from flour. To bread Um, so all you have to do like I don't do I really actually never learned to make bread in a way where you're like kneading Um, you just take the wet dough, you pick up one side of it and fold it over and you do that four times Um, you let it sit to relax a little bit and over the course of several hours you might do that four folds three or four times and that's all it takes the flour making bread is in many ways sort of a directing of the sprouting of the wheat Um, it's a sprouting with the enzymes and it's a fermentation with the yeast and um, the bacteria and if you can very gently guide that and you're starting with amazing flour then the bread's going to be amazing
2: you know I have to add uh, she's my pizza dough specialist. <laughs> she's my. <coughs> uh, she likes turkey red the most, and then her next other one is that hard Ride winter. And she makes a kneaded yeasted bread, was very good success. And my wife embraced that no kneading method, and she became really good. I mean, you can almost let cook. Um, you know, you can let dimes disappear now in her hole, in the holes in the bread. So she, there's uh, practice but also the knowledge. And she definitely changed her style around a lot with, you know, but she's sourdough, she's (laughs) yeasted.
1: So you guys talk a lot about um, trial and error and learning how to bake with these grains, but before the industrialization of food, this is how bread was baked before. So how much do you guys look back to find varietals that were grown around here, or you know, like every town would have its mill, and you know, are you doing research to find old recipes to help you guys as you move forward with these grains and baking projects?
2: Um, See with a lot of the very old varieties, <laughs> other than Red Five and Turkey Red, uh, you almost have to go back to a seed bank to get uh, a, a, a gram of those seeds. And we have done that, like uh, Sam Sweet, what we call Sam Sweet. That was a that, that's actually a newer variety. It goes back to a German breeding program for sandy soil. Somebody gave me 800 seeds. Said here, yeah, run with it. So we grew those 800 seeds, harvested it, replanted it, replanted it. You know, so it took us about three years, four years to build up the stock. We've done that with um, two varieties: uh, Luther Burbank, Haller's barley. We've done that with Sam's Weed. We're doing that right now with a couple, uh, three or was it three or four purple barleys, One from Tibet, one from um, Ethiopia. So because. It looked like there was a demand for purple barley, so we, all, we definitely respond to requests. Um, but it's, it, it, it can be a three, four, five year thing. You know, like this past fall, um, a local home baker author, um, Sam Fromat, who wrote the book, the In Search of the Perfect Loaf, he came across a French variety And He could just not stop drooling. It was just amazing that it seems to have totally different qualities to bake than he ever was used to. And He said, here, Heinz, I organize you 10 pounds, grow it out, run with it, and, but it's gonna be probably 18 by the time I have it for market. In 16, uh, we're gonna, you know, hopefully Russell is gonna make a bread and say, Heinz, worthwhile drooling, and Sam is gonna make a bread and says worthwhile drooling. You were able to maintain that. French quality, or we lost it. But I know that with Sam's wheat, in the 14 harvest, he wrote off as pancake material. And then in 15, he said, yes, you can make bread. So something, you know, did I figure out how to do the, you know, the nutrient density aspect better? I don't know. There's a lot of unknown there. But, you know, and then going back to the old varieties, uh, we do turkey red, as I said, Hazel really likes it. A lot of bakers like it. It has definitely more character. We did another one called Red Five. Um, Gabrielle made one loaf with it. She's said incredible week. It, you know, we were still pleased with the end result, but and in the hands of a master, I mean, they can then bring it out. But if you start out as a Red Five, um, it may take you six months to try it again. That's where, you know, like, the, the, the hard white right winter we grow, it, it, there is a different strength in there. There's definitely a different gluten strength, uh, elasticity, and, you know, and for a lot of people who start out, starting out with something like that, which is almost foolproof to succeed, you've got to build on that success and not on 16 different failures. You know why I stopped with rice is sort of a, a big question because I'm probably just stubborn because in um, 14, I mean it was all just plain money loss. We had a you know, half acre in rice it was basically got a, you know, a couple of hundred pounds. It was just miserable and everything cracked. It was, just, it was just a bad year. But I guess you know, tomato year may have been good and we paid our bills with tomatoes and, and absorbed the, the loss in rice. But that's where diversity comes in. If I'm standing on sixteen different legs you kick one out on the me, I don't even slow down walking. That's where diversity comes in. So So answering your question, yes we do, but we also we also you now look at what newer varieties have still the character of flavor and have some you know, let's say higher disease resistance, for example, or better, you know, uh, they don't lodge as easy. You know, a lot of the weed we grow goes back to India and, as well as to Russia. What
0: about the kitchen?
3: So with regards to technique for baking and milling, um, there is a fair amount of literature on milling, and part of it is that as the various regional grain economies in the United States get up and going, there is finally starting to be enough specialization that people can really take the time to try to learn about that. So there's like maybe three or four established regional mills, one in L.A., one in Asheville, um, one in New York, one in Maine, that there are people who are dedicated to stone milling with local, regional flour. Um, and I visited Nan this amazing woman who has a um, mill called Grist and Toll in L.A. And she had a few books on her shelf that she had looked through. Um, and there's a fellow in Victoria who just sort of designed a, quote, new mill um, based on a Roman style of dressing the mill. Um but it's hard because there is there's a lot to be learned from the history of the history of bread is very long. there's a lot to be learned from it. Um, but also, we're at the point where white flour and roller milling is so ubiquitous that now we finally understand the real value of whole grain. Um, for much of history, white flour was sort of, the paragon of health, um, as recently as like the nineteen fifties, sort of the um, godfather of modern baking, Raymond Calvel, French um, baker and scientist, wrote that whole wheat flour is very unhealthful because the phytic acid in it ties up all the minerals in your body, um, and white flour is much more available. Um, source of nutrients so is that true at all no no (laughs) it's not at all phytic acid does tie up some nutrients um but when you make a naturally leavened bread um that gets rid of the phytic acid and um anyway no it's not true at all so there's a new value that we've realized um to using these methods. And certainly, some people throughout history have realized the value of whole grain, um, but surprisingly, not many in a way that's been recorded that we have access to. Um, but it's being discovered now that there are people who are dedicated to each aspect of this, um, and we have time and the proclivity to really delve into it a lot.
1: What
3: are the yeast considerations for whole grains? So, bread that is fermented really quickly, um, the fermentation happens in the presence of oxygen, which means that there's no alcohol byproduct created, um, and the bacteria doesn't sort of start working for the first hour or two. Um, So you're not going to have much flavor if it's a quick fermentation. Um, And you're not going to have the acid that will get rid of the phytic acid, that will denature the phytic acid. Um, And you're not going to have the complete fermentation of the sugars that mean that a lot of people who have some distress from eating quick fermented breads um, and feel themselves to... Gluten intolerant, etc. A lot of those people can eat the longer fermentation bread. So it's not so much about yeast versus natural leavening as the amount of time that it takes. Um, So using a small amount of yeast is also very good. Um, But you don't get the same kind of flavors that you can get with natural leavening. And I call it that versus sourdough because depending on where. In the fermentation, you catch your starter. If it's a very young starter, then you can make a naturally leavened bread that doesn't have any of that sort of harsh acetic acid taste to it. Um, You have more lactic acid, and that actually brings out sort of the innate flavor of the wheat. So I prefer working with natural leavening, but it's the long fermentation that really does justice the wheat
0: so we may be at that moment where we've talked enough about this and now we can go and try some of the incredible uh grains that we've been talking about we have a largely vegan meal in with respect to Heinz's um uh preference and um but we have a yeah philosophy I'll go there um and we um uh just want to thank you guys, as always, for being a part of this conversation. It's so important. Hopefully, uh, I've always said I, c- I can't talk to Heinz without learning something, and once again, that's true. But uh, every- they're not leaving. They're going to be with us. And so if you have other questions, don't hesitate to talk to us while we're here. That's part of the fun of this is that we all get to break bread together uh, after it's done. And, you know, if you need a better, uh, I think... You know, seeing Hines and his family here—he he came up earlier. We had—we have grower meetings every uh, in the winter time for Woodbury and to talk about what we're planning for the season to meet our and talk to our farmers. And I just—you know—I'm always confirmed that we're on the right path when I get to to see Hines and Gabrielle and the kids. And glad you could all join us. And uh, hope you will have a great supper. So thanks again for being here.
4: Thanks for joining us tonight,
0: at artifact for our origin speaker series. With thanks to Dana Slater for producing the program, Hannah Reagan for her masterful coordination, and particular thanks to Mark Eldridge for recording this evening's conversation. We're grateful to be partnering with Heritage Radio in Brooklyn, New York, for creating a home for the Origin Speaker Series.